Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that reminds you that trimming your grandmother's bush is not always a bad thing. I'm Katya, here with my co-host Saeed. Hello. And Eris. What's up? And we'd like to introduce Mr. Patrick Thibault. Thanks for having me tonight, guys. Thanks for coming, man. We really appreciate it. So, Patrick, you are running for city council in which district? In Denver City Council District 8. When did you start your campaign? I really got launched late August, but definitely have been getting a lot of encouragement from the community to take this step for a number of years now. Across all the neighborhoods throughout the district, they have not felt that they have been a part of a collective voice when it comes to creating issues and policy that affect the district specifically. From my legislative experience, and I've worked in both chambers of the Colorado General Assembly, when the community is one of the primary stakeholders, the best legislative outcomes always arise. So, Patrick, we all know you a little bit, but um, can you explain why Denver means so much to you and kind of what was the initial spark for your interest in politics? What gets me most excited about my campaign is the opportunity to represent the communities that raised me. I'm a fourth generation resident here in East Northeast Denver. I grew up in a single parent home in the East Colfax neighborhoods. What really got me into politics is my mom at an early age planted the seed to really be aware of the issues affecting the community And most importantly, don't ever be afraid to stand up for people who may not be able to stand up and speak up for those who may not be able to speak up as loud. That seed has definitely blossomed into the professional career history that I've developed. And I realized throughout that process that if you really want to make change, you got to do it systemically. So I've been working hard to make sure that good progressive candidates get elected at all political levels but most importantly, also working to create good policy with those elected officials to benefit the, the community, the community at large, and the state at large. Your district, where does it encompass? Like, what's the boundaries? So just a, a real quick uh, rough sketch so everybody can kind of get uh, a rough idea about it. So it's all of Park Hill, all of Stapleton and Northfield, and a slice of Montbello up to the east side of Peoria. Where did you grow up? What schools did you grow up in? I literally have uh, grown up off the East Colfax corridor, you know, my entire life. The very first part of my childhood, we lived in uh, West Aurora, pretty much off Colfax and Peoria area. My brother and sister went to uh, Aurora Central High School, so we lived in the Hoffman Heights neighborhood. And then around fifth grade middle school, we moved over to East Denver and have lived uh, near East Colfax, South Park Hill neighborhoods since then. I'm proud to say that I live in the same uh, neighborhood that I pretty much grew up in. What high school did you go to? 
I went to uh, I went to a small uh, little Catholic school that not too many people probably know about because I mean heck at that time there was only seventy kids in my graduating class but it was right here in um, Park Hills called uh, Matchbus. Matchbus. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. See. So I mean, a lot of people know it. I mean, the thing is, is about Matchbus is I mean, it's not. One of those, um, it wasn't one of those high price, hoity toity, you know, upper crust schools. I mean, actually, when I went there, Matchbuff had the highest persons of color populations out of all the private schools in Colorado. And so I was very fortunate to um, have that educational experience, but very fortunate to have a high population of uh, folks of color along in the classroom with me because of the neighborhoods that it catered to. I mean, a, a lot of my um, classmates, you know, grew up in Five Points, uh, grew up in North Park Hill, South Park Hill, um, West Aurora. It was, a, it was a really unique mix. Yeah, I, I know you from poli-sci classes at UC Denver. Um, you know, what, is there anything there that sparked you into going into politics? What's re what's really funny is actually my main study focus was um, so I did uh, part of my study program at uh, UCD and part of it at CU Boulder. I was really had an affinity for um, international politics, so I studied international studies and political science, but with an emphasis in Middle Eastern politics and culture, and was doing a, a minor in Arabic, and but. <laughs> Mumtaz, Mumtaz. But just really, you know, kind of going back to that seed, you know, that my, you know, mom planted in me is that really had that burning um, for local politics and really to work on the issues that were affecting my neighborhood and, you know, my neighbors and folks who watched me grow up and still live next to to this day. That led me to follow the bends in the river and really devote a lot of my professional career history to working on local politics. Now, you mentioned a lot of this political work you've done. You worked at the Capitol for a little bit, right? I have. So I've worked in both uh, chambers of the Colorado General Assembly. I've spent uh, two years in the state Senate and one in the state House. And so I think that that's what really makes me uh, an impactful candidate. I can present the community what I've been able to accomplish legislatively and not just paint a pretty picture about what I'm going to do once I'm elected to Denver City Council. Okay. We're going to talk about hashtag me too first. We have Katya, I'd love to have you start off with this if you wanted to. We're going to talk mostly about, I think, harassment at the Capitol and... Colorado Capitol. Colorado Capitol, of course. Uh, who knows about Washington, D.C.? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at this point, take it away. Yeah, please. Sure. For the first time, I came out publicly, and I was the first one to file a complaint against Senator Randy Baumgartner. There were nine of us. There was an expulsion hearing in April of this year, and what the Republicans did is only hear my case, which was found credible by an outside source, and they held up the other eight cases, pretty much voted on partisan lines. They did not expel him. The Republicans did leak my name within the Capitol. I had some op-eds written against me. I have a Twitter account against me. 
there's Twitter accounts against a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's sucks. it's kind I'm of sorry. it's kind of funny in a way. What's like the best one you've heard on there? Um, can't remember at the moment, but no worries. Yeah, I put yeah. you on the spot. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so I just decided enough with this bullshit. I'm just gonna like talk. Saeed, so do you have the quote? I can pull it back up. Yeah. But in the meantime, do you want to start talking about the hearing and stuff? Okay. So actually, another woman who filed a complaint and was found all all nine of us were found credible. He's actually known as around the capital as the boob grabber. In my case, he was not the boob grabber, but the ass grabber. <laughs> the three of us uh, went to the workplace harassment committee. I don't know. They had a really beautiful name for it. I found it disappointing because one senator slept through it. Two senators kind of sniped and bitched at each other through it. One senator was went along with what the other senator said. The chair of the committee would not let any of the victims speak. The only people who had it together was the HR person and the legal team. One one senator even made fun of the uh, sexual harassment victims and rape victims. You said they didn't let you speak. Did they even offer to have any statements that you made entered in or anything like that? No. Nobody promised you anything or said anything? No. Um, and we, had, we had asked, and they said they'd consider it, and they said no. Can Do you remember all the representatives and people that were on that board? I do, but I don't oh, want to name them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Feel <laughs> free to, Saeed. I'm sorry, yeah. Mm. So, Krasanta Duran and Faith Winter, you were both on there and both had the opportunity to let her speak or either add her opinion, and you chose not to. Mic drop. No, mic drop. <laughs> the quote that uh, Katya had given to NPR was that she thinks what sexual harassment at the Capitol is a settled matter. And it's a non-issue to most people that live in Colorado. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You don't think anybody cares? I, I think the majority of people don't. Is it that the majority of people don't or that when you start playing politics, you are inherently turning this into a game? And so you're making people feel like they shouldn't have to care. I, I was surprised. Most men in my life cared. About 50% of the women in my life told me it was my fault. And Do you want to elaborate on why they may have said it was your fault at all? or um, What I wore. What you wore? Yeah. And What? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, but what? So, Katya, we were together in the Capitol, and you're one of the more conservatively dressed people I know. I was going to say, she dresses very modestly, yeah. No, and, but you don't. You hadn't seen me dressed at work, though. Oh, uh, I didn't see you at work. But I have yeah. seen you dressed at work, and yes. I would say that you dress fairly conservatively, like for most the Capitol. The Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have my boobs right, uh, right out there, yeah. Yeah, and so how does it make you feel when people are saying that this would be your fault? It, it challenged some re- friendships, really did. Pat, you worked at the Capitol, too. What do you, what do you think about all this? <laughs> Man, so I'll start off with two quick stories. Um, what really started to shape how I thought the culture was at the Capitol, I first started out as an intern. You know, before I, you know, had any sort of titled position I like to tell this story because I like to tell a lot of people who are going into politics, you know, especially a lot of folks who think that they're going to get in right away and start um, writing policy. So Change the world. right. The, the, <laughs> the, the very first job I ever did at the um, Capitol. So I, I remember my very first day I came into the Capitol. I was suited and booted, looked sharp, 
you know, felt uh, felt a little swag because I, you know, had some acumen for the policy and I thought I was going to be able to dive right in it. I've, I walked right in the office. I set my stuff down. The chief of staff said, Patrick, hey, we're excited to have you. Can you take these chocolate almonds and Gatorade to, uh, to the senator in committee? I, I had this, my, my chest was up and then I kind of sunk down. But um, that just, uh, you know, just that little side story just kind of shows, you know, how you um, have to work and earn your stripes and um, how sometimes you got to, you know, work up to having people, I guess, you know, recognize your talents at the Capitol. In specific regard to Me Too, I remember uh, speaking to an individual. Uh, again, this was actually when I was uh, an intern. They said, "So, uh, how many folks have you slept with at the at the Capitol this session?" And um, actually, this was from a female. I was taken a little bit off guard because I definitely had so much respect for um, the position and. I felt so very fortunate for all the years and sessions that I was able to work at the Capitol because we were doing the people's work. It kind of made me a little disheartened to hear that a lot of folks were viewing their work at the Capitol as something sexy. I could already tell that people had some gravitas towards power and it may not have even been the sexual nature or um, the the physical attractions or whatever, but it was people's ability to exude power at the Capitol and be a part of power at the Capitol that um, definitely took took me back. I could probably spend most of this podcast talking about the indecent situations that I've been a part of, and if you know at the Capitol from all sexes, from a lot of different uh, position holders at the Capitol, but. One that will always stand out in my mind is uh, speaking to some uh, folks uh, about a bill. There were some legislators there. There was a couple lobbyists there. And uh, the one individual said, all I want to know from you, Patrick, is when I can sit on your face. Wow. Wow. Again, I didn't didn't know how to uh, approach the situation. I just kind of laughed it off. But also at the same time, I didn't know how to react to that situation because folks, you know, who are listening, you know, may not know, but, you know, I'm a six foot four, air quotes, good looking, good looking white guy. Keanu Reeves. A handsome gentleman here. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, th- thank you all. And what y'all can't see is I'm blushing because I'm also modest. But, but the, but the thing is, is that I felt that you know, there, there wasn't a space and there isn't a space there, you know, for my particular stories. And so I never, I never made it about my stories. I never brought my stories to light, but what it did is made me want to show up for other folks. So I've always done what I can holding on to my stories on the inside to support victims. Patrick, as you've said, you are, I think we would all go, you're a good looking guy. You're tall and for a lot of people who work at the Capitol and we've, for those of us who work there, we've had those stories of uh, people saying you should be flattered by that. You should be encouraged by that. And, you know, to me, that makes me feel a little bit sick 
How do you respond to those type of comments where it's like, no, they were just being flattering and jest. It was our quote unquote locker room talk as some people. Well, I think part of that goes to like, it, sh- it shows that harassment isn't necessarily a woman's issue. It's also no. a man's yep. issue too. Yeah. I mean, how did that make you feel, man? Like we're, we're there. So yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was, is, and still will be a, a little difficult because I know that especially when a lot of folks are bringing their stories to light at the Capitol. I can't tell you how many times I just wanted to, man, just sit down and um, get all of them out there. But I didn't. Also, I think it it puts guys in a certain situation where they they feel like, you know, there's going to be scrutiny from uh, both genders. You know, some guys are going to be like, just like you said, it's like, oh, man, come on now. I mean, you... I mean, why why are you going to get upset when other people, you know, were making advances at you? You know, there's a part of that also makes it difficult because I want to be able to try to advance within this profession. And that was something that I had to think about is do I share my story and potentially ruin every opportunity and to be blacklisted or blackballed from any position because I wanted to share uh, my story you know, with folks, I just bottled it up and uh, I put it, you know, put a cap on it and set it on the shelf. What my, I guess, not not release, but I guess what kind of, um, you know, puts a bandaid on that situation is that even though I did, again, you know, bottle those experiences up and put it on the shelf is I've always done what I can um, to support other survivors in their story. Yeah, no, it, it's very tough, and you have to carry yourself in a very professional situation. And I'm sure, Katya, you dealt with that, too. I thought a long time about it before coming forward, even though I came forward anonymously. And, Patrick, it's incredibly courageous of you to run for office and be honest about what happened to you. I applaud you. Thank you for that. No. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, so and for me, I would say that, one, not only do I appreciate how forthcoming you've been, but... I feel like this makes better politicians. One, you're showing you're human, but also you have these experiences that others don't going back to being able to give the voice to people who don't necessarily get represented. So I, I thank you for sharing that story with us. Thank you for giving me the the space to share my story. I've only ever really shared some of these stories in very close and intimate situations with people that I know and trust. You know, again, thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, share some of those experience in this space. Not a problem. We're really happy that you could. Really thankful that you did, honestly. Saeed, do you want to uh, talk about some of the women's organizations? Yeah, let's let's move off this. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about some women's organizations around the state, in particular, Emerge Emerge Colorado. It's a program that focuses on placing women in politics, but I feel may lack the ability to put totally qualified women up for office. But I, I say that in the context of not all of them are bad. There are many great women that have come from Emerge, but there's also many that were not so great that came out of there. I mean, it's not even just uh, whether or not the candidate's qualified, but it's also whether or not the candidates are representing the ideals of their party. And if it's something that we should be promoting because we have seen this come up with... Uh, yeah, um, so part of that whole, you know, making sure that they have candidates to fit their party. I mean, there's Brie Buentello from Pueblo. 
Look, she doesn't have any support from any pro-choice organization or any kind of thing like that. I mean, we're looking at possibly the first anti-choice Democratic candidate to get in the state house this year. It's a very serious thing when, when you start just pumping out people just to say you have. We, we want to make sure that we have the best people that come forward for these positions, the best people that represent the people that they are supposed to be representing. Another odd thing about the Me Too part, we got no support from Emerge. None. None of none of Baumgartner's um, survivors, we got no support from Emerge. Isn't Faith, like, wasn't she one of the founders? I don't know. Uh, but I don't know who's in charge now. True. Yeah, different people at this point. But that would have been appreciated. Was. I'm not faulting them entirely because I think because of Emerge and organizations like it, Colorado has one of the highest amounts of female politicians in the country, which is a great thing. I, I'm not saying that women shouldn't lead because they should. They, they should be equally represented to the population just like everybody else should be. It's just they're they're pumping out people just to pump out people. Some of them do great things. Some not so great things. And I'd like a little more accountability, I guess. I think what's what's kind of troubling uh, about that situation is I, I do understand that um, a lot of times that politicians need to be able to recognize the, the values of their constituency and make sure that their constituency's voice is represented. But as a woman, when you're going directly against and you're developing policy and policy values that could be um, detrimental to your own person, I think it is definitely questionable. And I'm not sure if that's one of those situations where you're actually keeping the best voice of your constituency forward, but just doing what you can to get elected. And if you're doing that, then this isn't the job for you. Pat, wasn't your sister in Emerge? I've my whole legislative career has been spent working for uh, women and women of color who have gone through the Emerge program, and yeah, actually, my my sister has actually gone through the uh, and who is a person of color herself um, has gone through the uh, Emerge program. She didn't receive a, a whole lot of support, you know, from the the Emerge Sisterhood, which. Which was definitely was definitely difficult. So isn't that a big selling point that they have is that they're going to stick with you and help you out? Right, and there were folks that were on the Emerge board that endorsed a male candidate over the Emerge sister who was in the race. Yeah, there were three men against her. Um, so I guess that would be it for Emerge at this point. Unless you guys have anything else you want to say about them, or well, the one positive is that. It's an organization that's getting female candidates out there and promoting them on some level. And they definitely need to examine how they are doing that and what it means to be part of Emerge. But we also we also endorse organizations that do um, this type of work. Uh, we needed to say something nice. Yeah, we did. I tried to be somewhat nice about it. I got in once and then I got pneumonia. And, you know, they weren't. Real nice to Nikki Jones. Didn't you uh, do some work for Nikki? Oh, wait. Wait, no. Different Jackson. Nikki, Nikki oh. Jackson from Aurora? Uh, Jones or Jackson? Yeah, Jackson. Yeah, yeah. No, Dominic Jackson. Yeah. I worked with Dominic. Yeah. I, 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 I thought they kind of bullied her. You no, I, I don't know. I don't know what her Are we recording? program is. Oh, shit. <laughs> we were recording this whole time. 
You're shitting me, <laughs> No, Fluffy. dead serious. Hi, Dominique. Hi, Dominique. You're an amazing woman. Thank you for what you do. Out. <laughs> no, um, I was, you know, able to um, do some great work with Rep Jackson with my with my time with her. You know, one of the huge things and one of uh, the huge wins that we were able to do together um, when I was with her her freshman year was we actually were able to expand rental protections for victims of sexual assault and stalking. That was especially, you know, powerful to me to be a part of uh, that legislation, having those uh, bottled up experiences that I've had. And not even just uh, at the legislature, but in a whole different other areas in life where I've had uh, those those experiences. It was definitely powerful to help um, make sure that victims, you know, are able to have safe and sustainable plans when they have uh, scenarios of um, sexual assault or stalking. Why it was really important is during that stakeholder process, um, there were so many stories that we were hearing from women that a lot of times, you know, in their buildings, in their rental situations, the perpetrator of this uh, sexual violence was their landlord. That puts folks in a, a really tough and scary situation when you can't even feel safe behind your own locked door that you're paying every month for because the person who's collecting your rent is the person who's causing you sexual trauma. People that had testified in committee on the bill that were able to really give personal voice to the bill making process, you know, we were so, able to carry those personal stories. So those stories that. are actually on record somewhere. Uh, they yeah. they are 100 percent. And okay. and I have to give um, a whole lot of fantastic credit to CASA, the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, who is able to provide the space and provide the the support for those courageous uh, survivors to come forward and share their personal stories in committee. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to hear. All right. So, Patrick, um, of course, you've talked about how you actually are from the community that you are looking to represent. So we just kind of wanted to touch base with you on a couple of t different topics, beginning with how have you seen the neighborhood change and what do you think of it? I have personal stories and personal connections in every neighborhood of the district. You know, not too far, just blocks from where we are right now, actually. Me and my brother used to go on the east side of Stapleton and watch the planes fly in. Um, I remember that. I definitely remember that. That was so my favorite thing to do. Familiar, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. You know, I, I also remember... Like I said, I'm a, a six foot four, you know, not the smallest dude in the room type of guy. Walking home from Dairy Queen as a, you know, a 12 year old, you know, I've also been asked by sex workers, you know, <laughs> for some service. And, you know, I, I didn't even I, I didn't even know uh, what to say. Also, you know, I remember riding up with friends and, you know, to Spinelli's Market and, I remember, you know, some great, you know, cookouts as a kid in, in in Montbello. And so, like, I'm deeply connected to the community and, you know, what you all can see and what the folks 
you know, listening right now can't see is I, I just have goosebumps talking about, you know, some of these stories just because I, f- I feel so passionate and connected to the neighborhoods in my district. I've seen it. I've seen it change, you know, so, you know, a, a lot of ways for the positive and, you know, a lot of ways that um, also kind of break my heart. Can, can you give us like one example each way? Uh, most definitely, you know, Near East and Northeast Denver have been literally, you know, since since I was a kid, um, uniquely inclusive. You know, we've, we've had every race and every socioeconomic income um, living sometimes even on the same block. And, um, you know, some of that's starting to change. There's been some uh, policies directly here in District 8 that are really pitting generational uh, neighbors against the folks who are newly moving to the neighborhood. And what we, we really need to do is we need to make sure that our communities are staying the way that they've been for generations. And what I mean by that is we need to preserve what has made these neighborhoods so attractive to folks, keeping that inclusivity and um, working to preserve the community fabric that all races and genders have helped weave. It's good that you say that, right? I grew up in Northeast Park Hill, um, actually across Martin Luther King from where we are now on Pontiac Street. And now we're just on the other side of the street at my grandparents' place. And I remember... Growing up here was a great thing for me, but it was also hard. Um, it was a food desert at one point because we didn't have convenient grocery shopping. When my grandmother was taking the bus all the way down past Monaco to be able to just go to the King Supers. And so I've seen positive changes, right? We have new places to shop. We have new places where you don't have to go out of your way. It's been more convenient for travel with light rail. But at the same time, there's been the other areas where people are moving in to um, a place named after a guy who isn't necessarily liked in the black community and other (laughs) um, communities and don't know the history behind it and don't understand why people are upset about changing of the names around Stapleton. here. Stapleton. <laughs> <laughs> for, yeah, thank you yeah. for dropping that one in. Yeah, was, like we have Stapleton, right? We named it at the airport, and then we kept the name for a community over there that has priced a bunch of minority people out. So when you say that we need to respect those changes, what would you do moving forward to build that understanding for people who are coming in? So number one, I have to uh, let everybody know if you don't know, now you know, just like Big said, um, if you do know, please get involved with the organization. I've been very happy to devote a lot of my time and and talent uh, to the Rename the Stapleton Project. Um, I think that there's a lot of fantastic individuals from all walks of life, all backgrounds, that have really contributed to trying to educate the community on the history that is Stapleton and really try to work with the community on a plan to move forward from that. And they've been able to make some great headway, um, have been able to uh, help some organizations throughout the, the neighborhood understand the cultural context of the name. And actually, they've had a whole lot of success helping rename or having folks drop the name from that. And I think that as this organization in particular continues to have success 
and is able to connect the history to more folks. Um, there's a whole lot of folks who are moving into the area that are um, aware of the need for social equity that have that on their mind that are moving to the area that are kind of starting to pay attention to that. But there's a whole lot of folks that because they're not from here, they don't have that personal connection to the history and, and really what it means. Um, again, I would encourage anybody and everybody to, um, you know, help Genevieve Swift and Jackie St. Joan and um, Liz Snyder and a lot of other great people who their daily job is trying to connect the community to this history. It's folks like that. It's programs like that that really have uh, some of the most impact is when you can have that grassroots to grass tops effect. The problem is, is that we have a legislator of color who isn't trying to help connect that history to the community. And I think uh, that's something that we, you know, need to think about is we need some of these uh, projects to be spearheaded and have at least some some type of forum to connect the community to the issue. That's when we really get that synergy on issues is when we're able to connect our uh, grassroots to grass tops, get our elected officials engaged on the issues that a lot of these great organizations are uh, bringing to light. What are some of the proposed names to replace Stapleton? I think that that's what's been um, great from the community is that's kind of one of the, you know, if we're if we're thinking about a, a baseball diamond, I think that that's one of uh, the things that is like third base. Um where do you, you know, think we're at right now? Well, and I, I think we're getting there. Is And I think that that's what's been great about their effort is that they have really tried to focus it, not essentially uh, giving it a brand, but giving the history to the community so that they can figure out what would be a, a best name. And I think that when we get as many people connected to that, we can really get to the conversation about where do we, we as a collective, um, how do we want to brand our community? Well, I would look at it beyond branding. I would also ask the question of, we can't just sanitize history. So by removing the name itself and not doing something that also marks what has happened and what we've endorsed as a community, how do you get around those tricky topics of, one, acknowledging that this is who we have chosen to memorialize in a bunch of spaces versus the airport now the community than just sanitizing it. I think that that that's honestly um, a huge thing. Me personally, I do. I do. Obviously, I have, you know, supported the efforts to uh, change the name. As the age old saying goes, um, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. And I think that that's one of the biggest things is that we need to own we need to own the history. We need to acknowledge the history so we can move forward in a positive direction. And if we uh, completely forget what the relationship was and what the name is in terms of social equity within our city's history, we can't move forward in a, in a, in a positive direction. And I think it, it's so important because when you quickly forget, you start moving back into ways that it may have led you there in the first place. So you always need to be conscious of that history. Well, now, Patrick, now you've talked about moving forward. I have to ask, we've seen Denver grow exponentially since, well, I was a kid. 
how do you feel about the new developments that are going around and all of the other areas inside of your district outside of Northeast Park Hill? Because <laughs> yeah, so um, it would affect them a lot. Yeah, right. And and there's a you know there there's a lot with that. No, I do think that it is exciting that um, Denver has become such a an attractive place to live for so many folks from, you know, not only the, you know, across the country, but other countries as well. And I think that that's been uh, an exciting contribution, you know, for um, the city itself. I can remember back in 2011 that the real sexy policy topic to talk about was what is going to be re responsible development in our neighborhoods? I think that there's a whole lot of folks that campaigned on that, that talked about that, but we, we didn't really answer it. We, I think we just kind of tabled it and let things play out as they did. And so now it's, it's led us to the situation where we're scrambling to make sure that uh, Denver is, you know, working for folks at all levels and, you know, folks that have lived here. We continuously need to be cognizant. So Denver's really tried to define, especially in the Denverite program, um, it's a big focus to create inclusive neighborhoods. And I think that if we're actually legitimately going to have inclusive neighborhoods, we need to think about what quality, sustainable, and affordable housing options look like at all income levels. So, and, and that goes all the way from making sure that we have uh, workforce housing options where we can have folks, you know, who, who make a decent living, um, like our, you know, uh, peace officers and a lot of our uh, teachers in DPS. You know, I know that they would love the opportunity to live in a, in a close proximity to where they work, you know, to really actually be part of a lot of the families and the work within the within the communities that they work in. Do you feel like if if teachers live closer to the the schools that they're in, they'll be more connected with the students, maybe have better results too? Yeah, it, I mean, I think that that you know that definitely will happen. It's it's tied into results in the fact that when you understand when you understand the situations um, that are affecting. Uh, the students and their families, and you understand a little bit more about background, um, we're able to uh, really have those conversations about supports for the whole child. What are the, the services and resources that my students need to make sure that they are able to, you know, be whole, whole physically, mentally, to make sure that they're able to be successful in the classroom? I think that those things produce the results so i would also have to ask you brought up police moving in closer into the neighborhoods um do you also think that has an effect on community relations as we know denver's had their own history with policing in minority communities that hasn't been the best a hundred percent and i think that you know we always need to be cognizant and trying to work to make sure that our neighborhoods are safer but that's not always has to be through increasing police presence within our neighborhoods. Um, I think one of the hugest things that we we can do, and especially when we're talking about um, trying to make sure that our neighborhoods aren't over policed, you know, have that that presence, is that we need to have more community engagement within our communities as well, and that can be facilitated through 
and supported through our police departments. But, you know, from a, a legislative level, we can support a whole lot of community based organizations that work to try to have pro different programming and different community ed education uh, programs to make sure that folks are able to connect. When we're able to connect, when we really know, you know, who our neighbors are, when we know if the Nelsons, you know, down the street are out of town, you know, visiting family in St. Louis and the lights are on at 11 o'clock at night and folks are walking around, maybe that's, you know, not something that, you know, should be happening. When we have that understanding of our neighbors, when we know who our neighbors are, we can avoid those situations where we bring that extra police presence into our neighborhoods. With policing, some people will also say that it is a systemic issue and that we protect officers who, most of which behave in a professional manner, but some um, tend to go outside of the lines and we still protect them. What would you be doing about that once you, if you get to office? I think one of the big things that we need to do is 100% be supporting the efforts of our independent monitor's office. Uh, we need to be doing more to support as opposed to stifling uh, that work. There's a whole lot of, you know, uh, good cops that do this work, but there's there's a lot of dirty ones as well. And the thing is, is that I think the community deserves to know about those different officers' records and make sure that if police are fired from certain departments, that when they go to different departments, the community has the ability to understand history that that officer has had. You, you want to make sure the records follow them wherever they go. Yeah. We talked about education a little bit earlier. I kind of want to pivot back to it because, as we all know, DPS students actually perform fairly poorly on the state standardized testing. We've introduced reforms <laughs> to have them have a base level of education or understanding by having high school uh, exit exams, which... Uh, You're I, the only graduate. <laughs> um, I graduated from a school. No, from DPS. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I am a DPS grad. I'm Go Rebels. Rebels. Um, <laughs> it took me three different high schools, so TJ East. Hey, and, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. I still finished in three and a half years. <laughs> but, you know, I'm one of the few people who is an exception, right? We have a lot of people who don't have access to higher education coming out of DPS uh -huh. schools because they don't meet the basic minimums to even go to um, Metro or a community college. So what are you kind of looking at as far as education um, beyond supporting the teachers? Because we all know the teachers need more support. What else would you be looking to do? Yeah, so um, before I ever uh, got into uh, actually doing political work, I was a, recruit a recruiter, you know, at the Community College of Denver. And so I went oh. across DPS trying to make sure that kids from all situations and all backgrounds, and a lot of times, you know, I was, you know, even at uh, Flowcrit in the Gill, um, trying to make sure that... Uh, those young folks knew that they had that there was, you know, opportunities. And that's a big piece of what we're talking about on the campaign. Is if I so, can stop you for one second. You said the flow cast and the guild so, for those so, that don't know. Pregnant yeah. girls. Okay. So Florence Crittenton, yeah. I, I graduated from CCD even though I didn't have a baby. 
Yeah, I, I, I have no idea what any so, of that means. Yeah, so, no, these Florence are, Crittenden. And so, yeah, Florence Crittenden, you know, an, an alternative school, and Gil is okay. uh, does um, youth uh, correction services. So it's uh, alternative school and youth corrections. Is that it? Right. Okay. Kinda. Yeah. Well, I thought it might be, but I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't grow up here. Like, I shouldn't admit that, but yeah. No, yeah. no, no. We welcome all people. All people, yeah. <laughs> I'm in a room full of natives. And, right, yeah. right. So just, you know, from that experience, a huge piece of our uh, campaign, you know, really speaks to what you were talking about. If you really talk to any person on council right now, uh, they'll tell you that education really isn't in uh, the scope of work of what uh, a council person does. But I say that's BS, especially when 59% of your property taxes are going towards those types of services. You darn well be- better be a part of those uh, conversations. And so what I see that I can do and where I can actually make some uh, headway and really convene folks to this conversation from uh, my office as a council person is that we really need to be uh, supporting more alternative pathways and career and technical opportunities for our young folks and, you know, especially those 11th and 12th graders and making sure that we have that elective programming and project-based learning in our schools. So 60% of DPS students aren't going to go on to four-year university as part of their long-term goals. We need to ensure that folks are uh, career-ready as well because we're, we're going to have, if we keep on the current pace right now, uh, we're going to be short uh, thousands of skilled labor jobs you know, in the coming years with the amount of construction that's going on. And so we need to be making sure that we're creating a strong local talent pipeline for a whole wide range of uh, industries here in Denver. You're talking about creating new career paths for people and technical colleges and stuff like that. Do you feel the government has any role in helping supply some of those, be it funding or like bringing those schools in? So, so here's the thing: it's not really, it's not really in reinventing the wheel; it's helping the wheel spin correctly. So, there's a lot of great apprenticeship programs, you know, through organized labor and actually some CCD uh, Aurora Community College. Well, yeah, and other... Um, well, you know, I, I guess my question is, as a city council member, mm-hmm. what do you see your role trying to make sure that those schools have funding or that kids can have some some way to have it paid so that they're not like in, taking out debt in order to go to school? That's kind of moving into the area where um, we're starting to talk about uh, state policy. I can be, you know, that convener between... Um, our business community, our organized labor community, um, the conversation. but also to make sure that, you know, I'm ha- uh, supporting the efforts to make sure that we're able to get that project-based learning within our schools and creating the opportunities with our community colleges to make sure that we're supporting those technical education opportunities to connect, you know, to making sure that we're filling the jobs that we need uh, here in Denver. Now, I would ask, you know, you um, talked about how 60% aren't looking into four-year universities. Considering that the state of Colorado and they've been projected to need about a 60 to 70% workforce with four-year terminal degrees, 
some people would say that the DPS kids get the short end of not um, going to universities and not getting encouraged to go to universities, whereas a lot of the kids in the suburban areas are encouraged to go to universities and get jobs that are considered to be more stable in emerging fields and less dying out. Um, so how do you balance technical skill with also the pathway for four-year and advanced degrees? You know, definitely love, you know, this conversation and have a, a funny little story, you know, about that. And so when I was in uh, the legislature, actually in the in uh, the state Senate, Senator Newell and myself were able to work on a bill called the Advanced Industries Talent Pipeline. And so, again, it, it was, you know, its main goal was to create um, a strong local talent pipeline for a lot of our STEMs and our advanced uh, industries. And actually, you know, today uh, I was meeting with some folks at the Colorado Bioscience uh, Society, and they were saying that a lot of their members actually still utilize the provisions within this bill. And so I think that that's, you know, one of the things that we need to make sure is that we do have a huge need for, you know, skilled labor and making sure that we're able to um, have the jobs that are building as our city, you know, is expanding and advancing. But also um, aerospace is the second biggest industry in Colorado. And so a huge thing that we need to be making sure is connecting um, the opportunities with these advanced industries, you know, to our communities of color. And I think that, you know, really promoting, you know, these opportunities and making sure that students understand. So I'll just tell you the story. When I was actually meeting with some students, they were from Gifted and Talented Program. You know, actually, you know, what was exciting is the, you know, amount of students of color that I was interacting with, you know, in this experience. And there were some you know, young folks that were saying, oh, I want to I want to get a aerospace engineering degree, you know, because I want to work work for NASA. And, you know, I want to, you know, be involved in uh, space operations. You know, I just threw out, you know, just a, a quick little, you know, nugget of information that every individual that works at Titleist designing golf balls has an aerospace engineering degree. And so why I bring that up is because we need to be making sure that the folks that go on to four-year university understand the flexibility of their study focus and make sure that they're able to see the wide range of opportunities that their particular study focus may offer them. You probably can't fix this as one person, but what's your thoughts on the school-to-jail pipeline? I think one of you know the the hugest problems is that um, again number one not only just over policing our neighborhoods but um, having police presence sometimes in our schools can create an unsettling feeling especially for students of color who have had tough experiences with law enforcement and then to see them in the institution where they're trying to enrich themselves can, I think, sometimes cause some uh, mental stress. So we do need to, um, again, be thinking about how we make our schools safe, but at the time we don't um, over-police our schools and our students. Yeah, because you talk about having cops in school, 
what kind of effect that has on students. Whenever they get in trouble, it's no longer a disciplinary action by the school, but now a criminal matter for the courts. A, th- a thousand and one percent. And I think that we need to uh, be thinking about is our relationships, you know, with um, expulsion and suspension. Number one, they're um, supposed to be de- huge indicators, aren't they? Right. And mm-hmm. Well, there's huge disparities between, you know, students of color and their counterparts. But taking a look at the effects and not just the data, but when you potentially are, you know, you're having students who are, out, you know, having um, out of school suspensions. Number one, they're not in the classroom learning. So another one, you're, you're mm-hmm. putting them, you know, behind lesson plans. You're be- you're putting them behind the ability to excel. But then also, you know, you're putting stress. You know, number one, uh, just social stress on the student themselves and and potentially their family. You know, depending on that um, student situation. You know, maybe. You know, he was really counting on, you know, breakfast before the bell or, you know, that free and reduced lunch. And so he may not get those opportunities even just to eat. And then there's uh, the neighborhood situations. If you're at home all day and you're not in a institution that's trying to or in a situation that's trying to provide you um, positive space and you're in a neighborhood where there's tough situations going on or or negative situations around you you're Parents more aren't home. right you, you, in jail. You, yeah. you you might find yourself in more decisions where you're trying to have to avoid getting caught up in negative stuff in your neighborhood yeah. well and you talk about the disparity between students of color and white students which have been borne out over every single educational study. But I would ask you about the disparity in teachers, right? We, the majority of black and brown kids are taught by the least qualified of teachers, the ones with the least experience, who do not reflect their circumstances mm-hmm. and do not relate to them on a personal level. So how are you going to support changing to have teachers better change to deal with students that do not reflect them to to get more people of color to go into teaching as a profession well i think i want to add to that as far as like teacher retention as well making sure they stay here man you this is so hard for patrick i think he can't change the world i love it (laughs) I, I, i love it but you know the the thing is is when we start having these conversations we're actually in the in the biggest thing is is the dialogue when we're able to have the exchange of ideas and be able to connect these issues, you know, directly to the community, we can start to make some progress on that. You know, huge thing is, is you hit the the nail on the head and it's the biggest thing that we need to answer before we can even talk about recruitment is retention. And how, how are we going to it, it, recruitment is a huge thing, but then how are we going to keep them there? So just earlier this year, you know, I was a part and, you know, sat in on some of the community conversations with the finalists at uh, for Manual High School when Dawkins was, when he decided to resign from his position. That was recent, right? Um, yeah, it was earlier this year. Yeah. And uh, so they had three, they had three good candidates and um, two, in my opinion, were, were really strong, really strong local base candidates who were uh, folks of color. So they got into a situation where they weren't able to hire their candidate in a in a timely fashion, and that individual 
then went and had accepted a position at another school. They went to their second choice and he, you know, decided to stay in his current situation. And so then they they were left where they had three qualified candidates who um, could have done, um, you know, a good job at the school. And then they had zero. So that's a huge thing is that we need to be talking about, you know, how we can make sure that our hiring process does not deter us from finding the best quality candidates. And it's also, you know, taking a look at the criteria and the community needs to have a strong voice and not just be thought of as an afterthought or checking off a box, but actually have community be a part of uh, making sure that folks who are leading the futures of their kids, you know, are going to, you know, have the support of the community. If you could pick three words that define yourself, what would they be? I'll give you four. It's my campaign slogan. Community roots, community commitment. So thanks, Pat. We appreciate that you were coming and willing to answer a bunch of our questions that we had for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And already really uh, rigorous. So thank you for uh, putting up with us. And um, so now we're going to move into final thoughts. We invite you, to, of course, to wrap up with us. Um, my final thought is a swift fuck you to DU. <laughs> For those of you who can, don't know, can the, you explain why? Yeah. the Mortgage College of Education, one of their deans had posted inappropriate Facebook photos of her on an international trip with black children. Uh, inappropriate? Inappropriate in the sense that it um, oh. paired black children with a monkey. What? That's extremely inappropriate. Okay. So for a school <laughs> of education Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> to, one, pass the blame onto the marketing department, and two, not understand why those actions were so deeply offensive, a school that is considered to be one of the best schools in Colorado, I just wanted to say a swift fuck you for your racism. I'm just going to leave you with a recommendation. Check out Bros Being Basic on Instagram. Bros Being Basic. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Basic Bros. Okay. Uh, Have a nice night. Have a nice night with Basic Bros. No, Uh, Bros Being Basic. Bros Being Basic. Yeah, you don't have a nice night with Basic Bros. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll go real quick. I'll let you have the last word, Pat. My final thought today is I want to talk about how since the 1980s, Colorado has been changing from a primarily Republican state that almost entirely voted for Ronald Reagan to now being almost a liberal bastion in the middle of a Republican desert. Uh, Here we enjoy a lot of freedoms and things that have come from this, I guess, blue wave, if you want to call it that, in this state. It's nice to see that, you know, we're making some progress in that direction and hopefully it has good results in the end for everybody. Depends on your perspective, I suppose. You know, definitely want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, talk about some of the important issues and impactful issues, you know, that are facing our communities. You know, thank everybody at home, you know, for spending some time listening to us as well. Want to let everybody know, you know, I am Patrick Tebow. I am a fourth generation resident running to represent our neighborhoods here in East Denver. It gets me so excited at the opportunity to bring my talents and experiences, you know, from our our community and at every stage at the legislative experience 
to make sure that we're putting forward positive uh, solutions to the issues that are uh, affecting our communities. I want to make sure that we're able to preserve what has made our neighborhood so great, but have also an eye on what's going to help us be great in the future. But I really can't do that without your help. I can't make sure that we have safe and sustainable housing options at all income levels without your help. I think that one of the things that we always hear is that teach a person to fish, don't give them a fish, is not going far enough anymore. We need to be concentrated on building the lake. We need to make sure that we're creating an environment where we can find the fishermen, where we can train the fishermen, and then see them go on to help start other lakes themselves. This is the vision that I have for Denver, but again, I can't do it without your help. And so please go to Patrick, the number four, denver.com to find out how you can get involved with the campaign and also learn more about my personal story and my vision for Denver. And so thank you again. And that's Patrick, the number four, denver.com. Don't forget to donate. Please donate. We are a grassroots campaign and any contribution that you can give to the campaign is significant and make sure that we're able to connect our message with all of District 8. And Patrick, of course, you have my endorsement um, and we will place it down in the show notes as well if you're looking for the link to the website. So this has been Politically Pissed. We thank you for joining us and we hope you had a great time. You guys will say bye. Stay pissed. Be easy, y'all. We need your support.